from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the later time he made he was made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood for your will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Annalena. <clears throat> when uh, a number of years ago I... I was a, I volunteered a lot in, uh, at the church where I was attending in youth ministry and uh, was invited, or the, you know, the eighth grade guys, we were all going to go uh, on this camping trip in Arkansas. And we were in Kansas at the time, so it's like a day trip, uh, a day to drive, a couple days to camp, have fun, and come back. And uh, we went with another dad who was also a volunteer who knew this place especially well. I think it was Buffalo River National Park or Buffalo, something like that, and um, in Arkansas, beautiful, beautiful place. And he knew this place like the back of his hand. Especially uh, that was useful because we wanted to go uh, on a hike and explore and do all the things that uh, eighth graders, uh, some at least eighth graders, wanted to do. This group especially wanted to get out and use their energy. So we hiked a ton this day, and he even took us to a cave, and we. Um, uh, he knew the cave, and so we went in. He guided us through uh, this cave in the middle of this park, national park. And uh, you know, as you can imagine, once you're in about 100 feet or so, it bends just enough, and there's no more light. And so you're entirely dependent on whatever flashlights you bring with you. And we, of course, brought flashlights because we were planning on this. And uh, and we would go in, use our flashlights the whole time, make sure we don't trip. We would go to a spot, and there's once or twice that we would say, all right, everyone turn off your flashlights, and let's see how dark it really is. And we would turn off our flashlights, and it is so dark. If you've ever been in total cave darkness, you know what I'm talking about. It is so dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You couldn't see anything. And in fact, it's so dark that if you were there stuck for a month or two, you could actually go blind for your eyes not being used at all. And we were there, and then someone would shine a light. And it made such a difference to see that light, uh, at least on a part of the cave wall. And then let's say, you know, we all turned our flashlights back on. We could see a ton better. This darkness that uh, Isaiah is talking about, this darkness in which they are living, the nation of Israel, that is, is a lot like, in a way, being in a cave. And they're stumbling their way through with whatever light they have with them. But when Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, it's almost as if 
Isaiah is saying, the flashlights you've used before are nothing compared to the light that I'm going to show you. And this light, it's like in the cave, it's like daylight enters the cave. And of course, none of us have ever seen a cave in daylight because you can't obviously do that. But the light filling the cave, overwhelming the cave, making whatever flashlights we may have seem uh, almost pointless at that time. This light illuminates so, so much. Uh, God had something so much better in store for the, God, His own people. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see that the sun is risen, but because by it, I see everything else. This light that Isaiah is talking about that is going to enter the world is a light that is going to redefine how we, how we see things, how we understand things, and how we live. There's a way that, uh, and of course you can understand the analogy, there are a lot of times that we may feel like you're stumbling through darkness. You may feel like, uh, like life is kind of like stumbling through darkness and you want whatever light you can have. Uh, in fact, God's Word is a light for us in so many ways. Uh, Psalm uh, 119 says that His Word, the Bible, is like a, a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. But in John 1 something even bigger happens because the light, the Word, became flesh and dwelled among us. And so we, we not only have His Word to guide us, but the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And if you believe in Him, lives in you every moment of the day. Because by Him, we see everything more clearly. And as we look at how Jesus' coming changes everything, we also can't help but notice how beautiful He is in the process. Uh, There's something about having a campfire, to go on with the camping analogy, in the middle of of a dark campsite. A campfire is helpful. It helps you see a little bit. But there's also something about the campfire that's spectacular. Sometimes you just want to watch the campfire. Uh, It's comforting to watch. If you have a fireplace at home, sometimes it's comforting just to watch that. But this in so much greater a sense. And we'll see that the light that came into the world is going to be so much better than just the solution to our problems. Uh, but he'll be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so we're going to look at those today. And we're going to look and see at how Jesus being all those things, in so many ways, is, as Ray Ortland Jr. says, God's answer to everything that ever terrorized us as a child or ever terrorized us, rather, is a child. The answer to everything that ever terrorized us is this child Jesus that came into the darkness. And so we're going to look at God's perfect wisdom, His perfect power, His perfect love, and His perfect peace. Perfect wisdom, perfect power, perfect love, and perfect peace. So first, His perfect wisdom. Jesus is the guide that we need in dark times. Life is deep darkness. He's also the, the guide that we need uh, because, uh, well, sometimes, well, for two things, for two big reasons. One, uh, we're in need of light because the world is broken and dark and we don't know how to navigate it very well. 
Two, because by our own sin, our sin reduces us uh, in our wisdom. Sin reduces us to foolishness. So we need this light. And so in, in Isaiah, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light that those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That, uh, we're going to look at these two things. One, that the broken world uh, means that, that we may not know how to respond to what comes our way. Like if, uh, going back to Genesis 3, there was a time when every, Genesis 1 and 2, everything was working well. And God and, and Adam and Eve were living, God and humankind were living in close community and in, in, uh, in harmony and in, in love and, and clarity and transparency, everything was great. And then they chose to eat, to eat from the fruit of that one tree, the one tree they were told not to eat from. And since then, since then, there was a curse on all creation. That the ground is cursed, Genesis 3 says, uh, because of this, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles uh, will, it will bring forth for you. You will eat plants of the... Um, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And the hard thing about this is that sometimes it's not even by the sweat of our face, by the sweat of our brow, that we eat now. Sometimes by the sweat of our brow, we still don't eat. Right? The world is so broken that life is hard, and and things don't always work even as they're supposed to work. And we need a guide to help us know what to do and respond in those situations. Either in, either literally at work, uh, working to try to make money to try to bring bread home. That, that things happen that shouldn't happen. It's not just that it's difficult, it's just that people act the way they're not supposed to act. If life was formulaic, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? If life was formulaic, you're like, alright, I work this much and I'll get this much every time. That doesn't always happen. If I treat people kindly, they'll treat me kindly in return. That doesn't always happen happen. And we need a guide, a light, who can show us how to navigate that. Secondly, sin also reduces us to foolishness. We're not as wise as we could be. We are blinded by many things that we love, and we're only aware of some of that, really. It's amazing how how objective we often think we are, how objective I often think I am. And yet, sometimes God kind of peels the you know, lifts the corner of the rug up a little bit to show me the dust I've swept underneath there and to see the many things that I love that I don't always choose the best thing. Oftentimes I choose the thing that lets me have more of what I think is going to really make me happy or uh, subtle all kinds of things, lesser loves, addictions, um, other things that we just want to have will steer our decision-making. And we need a guide who is above and beyond our lesser loves, above and beyond the things that we try to uh, maneuver for in the midst of our decisions. Paul Tripp says that the epicenter of our foolishness is a street-level denial of God, not a philosophical atheism, but a denial of our need for God and a belief that we can live life on our own. He says, as the wonderful counselor, Jesus comes to rescue fools from themselves. The crazy thing is, is that as the wonderful counselor, he brings, lives out, and communicates to us this good news, which by the world's standards is foolishness. 
The gospel by the world's standards is foolishness. Right? By the world's standards, how much sense does it make that the king of the universe would be born to, uh, born to two newlyweds, first-time parents who have no idea what they're doing, born not in a, even in a hospital or a place where they're well tended to, born out in the street, in the alley somewhere. But we don't even know. I mean, we can kind of fantasize often about this nice little cozy stable or a nice cozy little barn that was well lit. And that part we kind of added in. Like if you read the Gospels, like that's not necessarily there. We just know that Jesus was laid in a manger out somewhere outside where animals would be fed. That doesn't make sense that the king of the universe would be born that way. And then look at how he died. Mocked. On a Roman cross. The most unjust death possible. And the gospel also says that it's by our admission of our own foolishness that we can become wise in Him. And depending on His wisdom, that we can actually have hope uh, for, for living with wisdom. Where the world says, no, 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 you have to become wiser and wiser and wiser, and you, 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 all of that. You don't want to admit your foolishness, no. You want to cover up your foolishness, but... Jesus comes to save us even from ourselves in that. And he's given us his spirit to live with us and to guide us in that way. You know, I I like thinking that I am right. I have for a long time. I have loved, uh, it took me a while to realize that I was doing this. In in my story, it took me probably 30 years uh, to realize that at some point I decided I wanted to learn things so that I could be right. Like, I was, it, there's a lot of things in the world that, that's fascinating, a lot of facts that you can learn, a lot of things about people, about historical events, about scientific, whatever it is. There's a lot of things I wanted to learn, I realized, because I wanted to store it up so that in a moment, uh, an opportunity might uh, present itself for me to say, ah, I know the truth and it's this, because I really love being right. And I don't like not knowing and I don't like uh, saying things like, um, I might be wrong. That it feels weak to say that. And yet, because the gospel is true, I can say, I don't know. Or I might be wrong. Because I'm not judged by God by what I know. I might be judged by the world uh, on what I know, but I know His opinion of me matters more and much more. And so we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We look at this perfect wisdom, and then secondly, perfect power. Perfect wisdom and perfect power. Because we need a God who can be our strength when we are weak. Who can hold things together. Uh, who, who, can, who knows what's best for us and can work in our lives what's best for us when we're unable to or even unwilling to. He's strong enough to do and to act to bring us what we need. He's even stronger, uh, strong enough to, uh, to steer things so that we might not get what we think we want, but what would be bad for us. He is our strength when we are weak. And so we can get behind Him. We can take refuge in Him. He has perfect wisdom. We can follow Him. He has perfect power. We can take refuge in Him in him. As we look uh, at, at today's passage and we see that uh, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is a reference to a couple of different things in Israel's history. One, a reference to their uh, enslavement in Egypt. That we're speaking of this, uh, the rod of the oppressor, the yoke. You know, God's people had been uh, held captive as slaves in Egypt. They were forced to work for free. And and as they would say this, and as Israel rather as uh, as Israel would read Isaiah's prophecy, they would remember how God was able to take them out of Egypt, to rescue them out of Egypt. And and here's the thing that God loves to do. He loves to win against all odds, just to show how powerful he is. Because how really did these million-plus Israelites, these million-plus slaves on whom the entire Egyptian economy was based, how uh, how were they able to leave? Through, uh, through uh, an ousted prince of Egypt who became a shepherd and thought he was washed up, thought he could have nothing good to offer the world anymore, and his walking stick, and his brother. That's how a million plus slaves were released. And once they were released, they, they were trapped. They were pursued by Egypt's army, trapped against the Red Sea. And how did God again triumph over uh, the enemies of his own people? A guy and his stick. The waters parted. Ten plagues came to release them and the waters parted to, to let them finally escape. And all of these uh, soldiers, all of Egypt's army was washed away. Secondly, this God loves to show off. He really does. And uh, secondly, this would bring about a call to mind, Midian, the day of Midian, as, um, as it says here in Isaiah. Now, the day of Midian refers to Judges 6, 7, and 8, uh, a story of a guy named Gideon. Uh, Gideon and Midian, they go together. Uh, Gideon, here's the other thing, Gideon, when you read about him, was an absolute coward. Like, he really was not a brave warrior. Uh, he did not aspire to go and stick up to the Midianites. At this time, God's people were, were oppressed in other ways. That what would happen often is, is they were, uh, the Midianites were so many that you could not count them. Uh, and Israel would kind of go about their daily lives. They would uh, harvest, grow and harvest crops. Uh, but right at harvest time, Midian would come in and just take everything and leave. They were like this massive parasite. And it's like the system that they can never break. And Gideon was found by God uh, threshing the wheat. Usually you thresh wheat on a big open hill so that when you, like, when you break it and throw it up in the air, all the stuff that's not wheat blows away and all the stuff that is wheat falls to the ground. But Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, not on a hill where he would be seen, but hiding. And yet God comes to him and chooses to use him. And Gideon indeed goes after a while, after a lot of testing and reluctancy, he goes and uh, there's this army that Israel has, 32,000 people. Now, it's not much compared with the 100,000 plus soldiers in Midian's army. But Gideon's like, okay, you, you've shown me, God, that, that you have the power to do this, so let's go. And then along the way, God says, you have too many soldiers. 
So I'm going to reduce this number. And then it goes down, I think, to 10,000. Then it goes down even further. And finally, it gets down to 300 soldiers against 100,000 plus Midianite soldiers. And Gideon, this big coward, who feels like, how did I get in this situation? Uh, Still step by step, does what God says. And they divide into three groups of a hundred and they surround the camp of the Midianites. They do something that's, I'm not exactly sure what it is, with, can't, with, uh, with lights and lamps and jars and they break them and they shout and trumpets. And the Midianites essentially all kill each other in confusion. And God laughs. Because this, the Israel's enemy is defeated so easily. So easily. Indeed, God not only defeats our enemies, but he holds all things together. You know, so often I want, I feel like I'm the one who has to hold all things together. I'm not sure if I know how many minutes in the day I actually don't feel that pressure, (laughs) right? Uh, There's just so many things that, that are going on in life. There's so many things to think about and things to worry about and things to, uh, to be afraid of. And yet God says, that he is the one who's holding all things together. That because he is here, that he is uh, our perfect power. He is the mighty God that we need. In the Psalms, uh, the psalmist at one point describes God as a shield around him, a big body shield with its curved sides, this, this shield that when we're holding it, no one can attack us. No one can hurt us, though they may attack us, rather. He is a shield around us, holding all things together. He is perfect wisdom. He's perfect power. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. Thirdly, he's perfect love. He's perfect love. He is everlasting Father. By his uh, life here on earth, and the fact that he was crucified and rose again, by what Jesus did for us, we can have access to the Father. I think as we read earlier from John 1, that to all, all who believe in Him, He gives the right to become children of God. And I spoke about this last week. This is, this is crazy talk, if you think about it. I mean, I would, this is one of the things that so many Christians have such a hard time not understanding. We can understand it conceptually that we are children of God. But to actually feel that is something different. It's a lifelong process, if you will. A process of being convinced more and more and allowing ourselves to think, well, how am I living as though everything rests on me? How am I living as though I really need to keep my act together for God to like me? Because as I look at my life, there's so many times that, that I, let me put it this way, I know, I know what I really believe about God's opinion of me, through how I treat others, in particular through how I treat my kids. And let me say, it's really easy just to get into maintenance mode and, and, and just try to be the commander of an army. And I do have a small army in my house, I know, but uh, sometimes they are an army against me and Megan. But, uh, they, uh, but uh, it, there are some wonderful, beautiful moments when, when I can see that like Megan is especially in touch with God's fatherly love for her, or that I'm like reminded, ah, yes, I am loved. 
Because you can see the difference in how we interact with our kids. Whatever, however frustrating uh, a situation might be, it really changes everything. Because God, his, the, the, the whole basis of our relationship with God is his love for us, his sacrifice for us, his, his doing everything to make himself unstable in the sense of entering the world, which is an incredibly unstable thing so that we can have a stable, secure position in his love. And there are no second-class children. There are no like, okay, there are these special children in God's family, and then there's the others that just kind of skated by and kind of got in somehow. We don't know, like, you know, at the family gathering, they're the ones that sit at the other table. Uh, they're the ones that, you know, no one really talks. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know if every family's like that, but um, our family's not like that. But uh, sometimes I feel like, okay, God, I know I'm your child, but I'm the child that's on probation, aren't I? Like, I'm the child that is still, that is still not quite loved that much by you. And yet, the gospel couldn't be any more clear that he lavishes his fatherly love upon us, that we are blessed with all the rights and privileges of being his children. We're no longer separated from him. We are sons and daughters of the king. And not only this, but it says this, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, and they, as they are glad, oh, excuse me, as they are glad when they divide the spoil, that God, because he, His love is so great, His family multiplies. His family extends. Uh, his family extends. His love was so great, He wouldn't let His family just be the Israelites. And this was huge. That, that He would also include the Gentiles. Because back then it was unthinkable. Everybody, every nation said they had their own God. And so Israel is thinking, okay, well, you'll show how great you are, God, by, being, uh, by having us win and us being the worldwide power. And God says, you don't understand. I don't just love you. I want to share my love with all the nations. It's not just you. And he does that through his people. And he does that for his glory. And it's interesting because God, God's the only one who can do things for his glory, by the way. He's the only one who can do things for his glory without being arrogant. Uh, if any of us do things for our own glory, it's arrogant. Why? Because we, essentially, by doing things for glory, we're trying to be, trying to attract the awe that only God deserves, really. And, but God, because he is God, because he is everything that anyone can ever praise anyone for, he's worthy of it. And so for his glory, we see in Revelation 7 that this promise that Isaiah gives to us will come not only to a beautiful, um, to manifest itself in beautiful ways, but in the end, we'll see this, that after this, behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is a nation, there is a, from every nation rather, God's people will be gathered. That this whole world, that there be every tongue, tribe, and nation, there'll be people who believe in Jesus from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this will be like harvest time. 
Harvest is a big deal. If you are in an agricultural society, it's the thing you wait for all year. It is payday. It is everything you've done all year, you're finally cashing in. And Jesus has, I mean, it's a big party once you get it done. And yet Jesus speaks in the Gospels of a harvest that that we get to reap, but we didn't even sow ourselves. Like being in his family is like that. It's like, you know, we just need to go out and reap the harvest. Go out and share this love with so many. It's like reaping a harvest. It's not, it's not just work. It is joy because as you're working, you see the abundance of God's love at work in you and in others. Of this harvest that we can reap but didn't even sow. Same with dividing the spoil. Uh, this is language. Dividing the spoil is what you do in battle after battle. When your enemy is defeated, you go and you take all their things because they don't need them anymore. They've... They're not living anymore, so you can take their things. That's what spoil is. And what we see here, in a way, it's like dividing the spoil. But it's a victory that we ourselves didn't win. A victory that God himself won. And with this are riches. In dividing the spoil, there's also a sense of justice and finality. There's a sense. And I don't know how God is going to do all this. Like Only God can do this somehow to let his mercy reign and also for justice to reign. That there will be people, uh, yes, and a beautiful thing to see people who are our enemies on earth. Some of them may also experience the love and mercy of God. And I think when we see them uh, in heaven and say, how did you get here? And they might say, the same way you got here. By the mercy and grace of our Father. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So, as we unfold this and other passages in Scripture, we're meant to get this sense of, of, of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Everlasting Father. If we look at perfect wisdom, perfect power, excuse me, perfect love. And perfect peace, excuse me. Perfect peace. Sin does, it makes us, it separates us from God. Not only separates us from God, it separates us from others. Um, it, it separates us in, in other ways from creation. Like our relationship with creation is not what it should be. And even then our relationship with ourselves is not what it should be. That we're even conflicted within ourselves. Sin is antisocial, it's destructive. We can make, uh, Paul Tripp says, it makes us better fighters than lovers. But God had a solution. It would not be a negotiation, it would be a gift. The gift would be one we can never achieve, earn, or deserve. It'd be peace with God. And peace with God, the only road to lasting peace with one another. We think with this perfect peace, uh, we look at this passage of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, we're meant, I believe, to think of Solomon in this sense, of someone sitting on David's throne. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, uh, it was like... It started with Saul, King Saul, and that was no good. Uh, they really, really wanted a king. They picked the best-looking one, the tallest one, the strongest one. He was also kind of a coward. 
and he didn't want to be king like when it came time to be king. Uh, and he, anyway, that didn't last long. And then King David came along and was uh, anointed king because he is, his heart was one after God's own heart. And David, yeah, was not perfect by any means, a huge sinner, and yet was broken by his sin instead of calloused in his sin. And then his son, Solomon, reigned after him. And Solomon's reign was really the, was the glory days of Israel. And there's never been a better time since, even in the 3,000 years since Solomon was king for the nation of Israel. That Solomon is beautiful. He, uh, God came to him and said, hey, I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon asks for wisdom that I can rule your people well. And God gives him wisdom, but also gives him treasures and, and everything more than he could ever imagine. That it's like it never ended. The blessings to Solomon would never end. It. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. That he lived with ju- ruled with justice and righteousness. That, that there is this kingdom ruled well. A kingdom characterized by, by wisdom and abundance. And there would be no end to it. It would always increase. And this can manifest itself in so many different ways. Uh, we, we know, let me give a, an example though. There's an Olympic runner uh, who, became, from the, who ran in the uh, Berlin Olympics in 1936. And then uh, when World War II started, he joined the Army Air Corps. His name was Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini survived an, an unbearable, unbelievable ordeal when his plane was shot down over the South Pacific. Right? He, he survived, uh, I think it's 27 days in shark-infested waters, eating what only they could catch with their hands, drinking rainwater whenever they could capture it. And then he was rescued by the enemy and sent to a prisoner of war camp, actually about three camps, where he was for about two years. Uh, and, the, and the final one was operated by a cruel and unpredictable head guard named the Bird. Now, when he was, and, and he was unpredictable, he was mean, he, he actually singled out Zamperini because he was an Olympic athlete. He wanted to show how, how weak this Olympic athlete really was to humiliate uh, America. And when he was finally released from camp, he was sent home to a nation he thought had, they thought he died years before. His life began over again, began over again. He struggled with anger, though, and alcoholism. He struggled with PTSD. Even though the battles, battle was over, even though the war was over, his enemies defeated, he still struggled to find peace. His anger at the bird, this guard, would not subside. And his flashbacks kept coming. But in 1949, he was invited to a Billy Graham crusade. He heard about the forgiveness and grace and peace that he could have in Jesus. And his life began, began to change. As he found peace with God, he then began to seek the bird, his guard, to forgive him. And he went and was able to find his other guards and, and extended forgiveness to them. I don't think that we know of, I don't think he ever found, ever met with the bird. I'm not sure. It looks like he never actually did. But what can change that heart? What can change that hurt? What can change that anger is knowing 
that on the cross that our own sins were forgiven. That on the cross, we who were God's enemies were reconciled with Him. That it's through the love of Jesus that we are able to have this perfect peace. And this peace just just amplifies and extends and, and just keeps going and keeps getting bigger and bigger and better and better. And this is the sense of this eternal life that we can begin now, but then have more and more uh, when Jesus returns again. It's kind of like the way when I was a kid, I thought Christmas morning would go. Like I always in my mind when I would, and I would go see Santa sometimes and tell Santa what I wanted, I'd write a note to Santa. And I, like in my mind, what I would get for Christmas would somehow satisfy me. And, and I would always get great gifts for Christmas, right? But they were, they were wonderful. But even if I got something that was exactly what I wanted and what I thought would make my life just incredible, uh, it never quite made me that happy. But the sense here with this, uh, this piece that never ends, it's like, it's like having these gifts actually fulfill you. And, and they just never stop. Like the things that we that God gives us, His generosity. You think there's an end to it, and it never ends. That you think that God's grace will only go so far, but it keeps going. And that is why we're planning a church here. That is what King's Cross is all about. I don't know. You might be convinced that God's grace has gone as far as it's going to go. In your life? In the lives of your neighbors and coworkers, your family, your friends? Maybe you feel like God's grace has gone as far as it's ever going to go, but you know what? He loves to show off. He loves to show love and grace to those who don't deserve it. His grace will keep expanding and increasing. Ray Ortland Jr. says also this, the empire of grace will forever expand if we live by faith in Him now, accepting His weakness as our strength and His folly as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy His triumph, forever ascending, forever, en- forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will, there will never come a moment when we will say, this is it. This is the limit. He can't think of anything new. We've surely seen it all. No. The finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, as we look at this, we know, first of all, how what we understand about Scripture influences how we read it and how we understand it, which is why we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And as we look at all of Scripture, we see something called like a redemptive history or a history, something, a story that God is weaving, a history of what He's doing. And this starts with him creating all things good and giving us purpose in our lives. And then, yes, we had it all, but then we lost it all. And then, in the waiting, Christ comes. Now, when Christ came, he came as the light. He came to to be the light and show what he could do, that he was the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who was to come. Uh, He healed many, did many miracles, but all that was to give us a foretaste of what heaven and eternity would be like. When he died, was buried, rose again and ascended, he said he would come back. And so we're living now in what a time called the already but not yet. The already but not yet. And this is so important. Because some of the things that we've been reading about today in Isaiah, we've gotten tastes of that. And I pray you get tastes of God's 
everlasting love for you. I pray you get taste of his perfect peace in your life. I pray that you get taste of his power and you get to see him work through impossible situations. That you get to see him uh, guide you through, through the hardest of times. And yet we will still struggle until he returns. And all of this is made new. We'll no longer struggle with sin. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in the words of Isaiah 26, it says this, in the meantime, we have him who is our perfect peace, living in us, reminding us of what is yet to come. Isaiah 26 says, you keep him in perfect peace, him whose mind is steadfast on you, is fixed on you, because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord God, is the rock eternal. He's with us. He came for us. He's with us now and he'll come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed show us how much more grace you can give. Show us more, all the more, uh, who you can show your grace and love to. Father, we may feel like your work in our life is, is done and it's up to us to, to fix ourselves. Father, I pray that rather you would show us how you are the strength that we need when we're weak, that you are the guide that we need in the darkness, that you are the, the one who loves us in the way that we feel love ought to be, but only get a, a, a taste of every now and then, and that you would be our peace. Father, show us more and more your splendor by working beyond our imagination. Show us your splendor by working in those and changing the hearts of those we would never expect. Show us your splendor by even changing us. For all for your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.